Welcome to the Thrive Alcohol Recovery Podcast, where we share tips, information, and success stories about a revolutionary treatment for alcohol use disorder called the Sinclair Method, or TSM. TSM can help most people reduce rather than abstain from alcohol by addressing the root cause of problem drinking, which is inside the brain. I'm your host, Katie Lane, Sinclair Method success story and co-founder of Thrive Alcohol Recovery, where we help you find freedom from problem drinking using this approach so that you can live your best life. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome everybody, it's Katie with Embody Daily, and I'm back for part two of an interview with Lindsay, who is a success story on the Sinclair Method. Um, Her first interview, we just did not get to cover all of the things we wanted to cover. So I'm having her back again and just want to say thank you so much for coming back to talk with me. Of course. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. I just was going to go right into it. Yes. Okay. Let's elaborate a little bit more on the question you asked me last time regarding Lindsay, what did you do besides just take the naltrexone? And I sort of said, well, you know, I'm, you know, meditation and I worked out and did a lot of reading and that's all true. But um, I did, I've been doing a lot of therapy and a lot of inner work and trying to get down to, and I I believe I'm getting, I I believe I've gotten there. um, The bottom, the bottom of why I drank in the first place, the reasons why I did it in the first place, why did I need to self-soothe in the first place? Um, But in addition to that, um, while I was on naltrexone, after watching one of your YouTube videos, um, you mentioned that it's a good idea to um, really keep your ultimate goal in mind. I think you said something like that. Like for for me, the goal was abstinence, harm reduction, eventually abstinence, not to drink like a regular person. I kind of had lost interest in that. Um, And so when the the time finally came for me I was laid along I was kind of like it took me eight months to do TSM and later on in the process like around month six or seven I was a little concerned because I had plateaued right away at the beginning and then my my drinking slowly inched back up and I was up to like 12 to 15 drinks a week which is twice as much as what I had been when I first so I I'd gotten down to when I first started TSM, I was down to like seven drinks a week immediately and I plateaued, but then it kind of went up again. And then I thought, what did you start at again? Just for people who maybe haven't seen your other interview, like where, how bad was your drinking right before TSM? How much were you drinking? I would say 30 drinks a week, okay. like 20 to 30 drinks a week, nine units drinks. When I say drink, I mean like a pint of beer. Okay. I wasn't drinking mixed drinks or anything. Mixed drinks can have kind of that little, like can be strong or weak. Um, but basically when I say drink, I mean a, a 12 to 16 ounce beer. So it's probably a unit and a half, but apples to apples. I had never recorded or thought of drinks in terms of units really. So I just thought, keep it easy on myself. I'll just compare what I was doing. But, um, so yeah, I plateaued right away. I was amazed at how quickly I went down to like seven drinks a week versus 30. I have a little dog here who's growling from time to time. I don't know I hear but uh, I went back up again and I started to inch towards like 12, 15 drinks a week and it concerned me a little bit. And I've heard people at, at the Embody, like the um, TSM meetup meetings say, God, I'm kind of concerned about drinking through it, um, pushing through. And I didn't want to risk that. So I, it became important for me to, I did have to make a concerted effort to bring those drinks back down to seven a week and below. So after they had gone back up after plateauing, I really did have to put, I had to put a little more energy into it, but it wasn't, like I said, I used to have this when I think about drinking, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And once in a blue moon, I would say, okay, I won't. But I was like, oh, really bummed, you know, like, this sucks. I I really want to drink. Why can't I? Um, So I, I fight it with willpower. And then after a few days, you know, it would all, this debate would come up again and the bad side would always win. The drinking side would always win because it was just so much easier to fight it than to fight it. So um, I just kind of regrouped and um, became 
I, I, I made a conscious effort to bring my drinks down to less a week. And I made an effort to do that, but the effort wasn't intense or difficult or like swimming upstream. It was just an easier, I was able to arrive at that conclusion e more easily. So if I wanted to get down to five drinks a week, by that time I had to make an effort to do it, but it wasn't torture because I'd already lost interest. It had already started to work, you know, um, and I really trusted in the process. Can you talk about what that decision process was like when you were making that conscious effort? Like, could you paint a picture for us what that scenario was like? The decision-making? Yeah, like when you were consciously, because you say you have to consciously make the choice whether or not to drink. Like, give us an example of what that was like for you on the Sinclair Method. Well, listen, I, I didn't um, I didn't engage. I know I said this in our first part. I didn't engage any support during this, which was really, it was just not something I would do again. I kind of had to do all these things myself, like um, talking myself out of it myself. And um, I would, if I busied myself with something else, I would lose interest. So I would um, do something goofy, like shovel the walk or work in the garden, depending on what time of year it was, um, read a book, call a friend, but I didn't, I would recommend getting support through the process so that you can actually talk to somebody and say, hey, can you have any tools that you can give me? Now, I wasn't totally unsupported. I was watching all your YouTube videos, you know, um, but it was like, I, I really enjoy sitting in those TSM meetings, those Zoom meetings, because people are, you know, they do have the same questions that I did and people who have gone through it can really offer the support. And that's really obvious. You know, someone who's been through it before you have will know about it more than you will and can answer questions for you. But I was also like, okay, I don't, I didn't want to get into the habit of questioning it too much either. Um, I hear people worrying about things on those meetings that I did worry about too. And all I want to tell them is it's not a big deal. You don't have to worry about that. It's a lot of people are walking today. You don't have to worry about those things that it'll do, it'll, it'll work and it'll make things easier for you while you're trying to get to your goal. Um, and by thinking about it too much, like the ways in which it could go wrong didn't really serve my purpose. You know, um, for me, I really, I truly believed in it um, and the science behind it. Um, but at the same time, I had been really unsuccessful and I was afraid that it might not work for me. There was a fear there for me. I think I mentioned that before and I wanted to make sure it worked before I told anyone as if I had to prove myself to people, you know. Um, but I guess, to be honest with you, it wasn't a pretty process. I would pace and like talk to myself out loud about it or my dog. You know, it wasn't, sometimes I'd be like, oh my God, am I nuts? If somebody saw me right now, they'd think I was crazy. But it wasn't this pulling my hair and being like, oh, like that. Yeah. It was like, you know, I was able to see in a different light for what it really was. Yeah. And here's the thing, on Sundays, um, in Minnesota, they didn't sell liquor, booze at all on Sundays until 2017. Liquor stores were not open. And we don't have, we don't have um, booze in Walgreens here or anywhere. Like I remember when I lived in California, you could pretty much buy it anywhere. Yeah. Here we've got the municipal liquor stores and those are the ones and they were closed on Sundays until 2017. And so in an effort to, you know, placate people they sold three point it was called three two three two beer it's 3.2 percent alcohol in the gas stations and of course as a big drinker I was like I'm gonna waste my time with 3.2 beer that's a waste of time but that was an option for me that day because the gas station was right across the street and it was open that day that I rode to the liquor store and it was closed and I thought I'm gonna go home mm -hmm. That option was there, but it wasn't at all tempting to me. Now, had it been a regular other liquor store that was open, I probably would have gone to it and, and bought beer. But 
I didn't ride home in a funk. I didn't feel like I was missing out. And that to me was always what made it so tough is that I, I felt like I was a life without drinking was going to be a life of total boredom and missing out and missing out on something that I really wanted, but couldn't have. Um, and taking naltrexone solves that issue because I no longer wanted it. But there is, uh, you know, it's a default, you know, your brain goes because of the endorphin system, your brain is going to go back to the activity that's brought you comfort before. The weird thing was, is that it was also really didn't bring me comfort anymore. I mean, no, it made things a lot crazier. Yeah. It made me feel worse. So, um, but I just, I couldn't fight it. And I needed to be in a place where this is, was something I wanted and that my brain was on board with. Um, it was just really scary for me to feel like I didn't have any ability to help myself. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad we're talking about the kind of conscious choice you're talking about on those days where you could have drank, but you kind of took some time and space to really examine it. Because I think that is what hangs people up a lot where, like you said, it's like your brain is used to doing what you've always done and kind of the familiar territory. But through this method, that temptation can still be there. But like you said, it wasn't pulling your hair out. Oh my gosh, I got to have it. Or, oh shoot, I can't have it. It's more, okay, no, I'm not going to drink. That's fine. But the fact that you had to explore that territory to kind of, I guess, implement more discipline around it or just more thought, I think that's a really important um, part of your experience that you're speaking to. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to kind of think, oh, because it, it, you know, oh, it was so easy. I hardly had to do anything. But then when I really look back at it, like I said, look back on my journals and stuff, there were times when it was just like, okay, so you got to, I had to write down some goals and steps that I could do to reach those goals. Um, and of course, like my self-esteem was in the toilet. You know, I felt terrible about myself all the time, starting at like 12, you know, like I just, felt bad about myself and I was on the outside really like a, an easy person to be around sunshiny disposition and then on the inside I was just like this ball of misery um and I didn't want to be I want to be an authentic person you know I think it's important a lot of people don't talk about their struggles and act like everything's fine um for whatever reason but um I think it's really important if, if I knew, I just think it's really important to put your story out there because anyone can, people can relate. Um, if it affects them, they can relate and they're interested. And I don't, I don't, I would like to see others not have to go through the 20 years of really challenging self-doubt and abuse, self-abuse, you know, that I went through. Because I came out the other side, like I said, I don't want to say those 20 years were all for naught because they weren't. I learned a lot. But there were times when it got really dark and I wondered, like, am I going to be like this for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be compromised for the rest of my life? Am I going to not have friends? Am I going to not have interest in anything besides, you know, all I had in me was go to work come home, drink, go to work, come home, drink, and then feel terrible about it and then recover, you know, get through the, the hangover. Um, <clears throat> but I just, like I said, I wanted to really be free from it, free from the desire. And once I heard about the Sinclair method, I thought, well, I'm going to give it a try and see if it works. And it worked and it makes sense that it works. Um, I think if, if anyone is thinking about doing it and has reservations, I think it's just a, I would say just go for it and give yourself a few weeks for it to start working and then start to think about like, like we were talking about last time. What do you say, a month? Start taking the medication, do that, do, let it do its, its work. And then after that, start to do habit changing. 
you know, get a morning routine. I got a morning routine instead of just like flying out of bed after hitting snooze four times, you know, wake up, do a little five minute meditation, um, <clears throat> take the dog out, have a little quiet time. Don't look at my, like, I don't look at my phone until I'm, you know, out of the house, say, you know, for work. Um, because I really need to protect those, those, um, those reserves. Um, I spent a lot of, you know, my, that, what we only have a certain amount of willpower in our prefrontal cortex and mine was gone. Like I said, by the time I leave for work in the morning, it was gone. I had no reserves left. Uh, and then I'd work all day and I'd have to be, you know, strategizing around work problems and things like that, which further depleted my, and I had no energy and no interest in things. And I've struggled with depression. I thought, oh, I'm just, maybe I'm just depressed. I'm in a, you know, 40 some year long depression. Um, but I have, I've never felt better. And when I was drinking, I wasn't taking my antidepressants regularly. I wasn't good about it. Yeah. I wasn't honest about drinking because I kept being told when I would admit to drinking that I had to go back to rehab, uproot my life again, quit your job, tell HR you need a month off, somehow not lose where you live, somehow. And, and to me, it was like, that's not a solution that doesn't help. Right. Um, I need something that's going to help me here and now in the real world and give me the, the tools that I need to just kind of live on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, going to rehab for a month is, that's not real life. It's not, and I, I'm not saying it's important, it's good, but as soon as I got out of there, it's kind of like when I graduated from college, I was like, oh my God, now what do I do? As soon as I got out of rehab, I was like, now what do I do? Um, and um, for me, it's, it's, it feels really good to no longer be basically killing myself with a substance that I know is killing me and that I can't stop. Yeah. When one's self-esteem is already as low as it can go, that's, will sure bring it, will surely bring it lower, you know? Um, How is your self-esteem now that I think you're, you're about, a, you're, you're sober, right? Thanks to the sober mm -hmm. method. Yeah, tomorrow I have a year. Oh my gosh. Okay. Very cool. Tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> that's really Thanks. cool. Yeah, I wrote it wrong on my calendar. I put it on today, but it's tomorrow. I have 365 days without alcohol and I can hardly believe it. Like I'm not counting my days. I, you know, I, I, I did write on my calendar every month. So maybe I was counting my days. I count my months, but um, I can't believe it. I used to think a year, that's impossible. I couldn't even put together three days, mm -hmm. but it's because I don't have the desire to drink that I'm able to do it and enjoy life and, and be aware of my surroundings and be engaged um, and let my true self really come to the surface. And I do still struggle with, with a lot of self-doubt and negative self-talk. Um, and it's really important for me to shut that down and replace it with different thoughts. Um, uh, Again, a conscious choice itself, like, cause those things can take over, right? So you have to kind of be aware of them in order to redirect them in a sense, would you say? Yes. Yeah, so right. So I just became sort of aware of them. It's gonna take me a little bit of time to um, <clears throat> work around them, uh, work with them. I, I tended to do the old, I compared my insides to everyone else's outsides. Um, but everyone's got something, everyone's got struggles. And I think everyone's kind of just doing their best. I like to see people do well and be successful and be happy. Um, and I didn't have it. Like, I think I may have mentioned this last time, shame and compassion don't exist in the same place. And I was always drowning in shame. So I had no compassion for myself. Um, and, and apparently it's really hard to have compassion for others as well. Um, and while I would feel compassion for others, I don't think it was as deep as the 
the way I feel now, you know, I think, um, sometimes I, yeah, I, I wonder about things like maybe I made bad choices. Maybe I blew it. Now I'm too old or, or whatever, but it's like, I can, I'm okay with just kind of living life now and there's nothing I can do about the stuff I did in the past. We all know this. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really need to, when my brain is kind of getting away from me and I'm starting to roll with something that may be not true or, um, you know, fortune tell on something or pretend like I, I know what's happening and I don't, or my perceptions and I don't have the whole story. Um, I, for me, if I feel good about myself, um, I treat everyone else better. And I know that sounds really simple. And I, and I liked things about myself before. There were certain things that I did like about myself, but I had this overwhelming sense of shame and failure that I couldn't drink and that I couldn't be honest with people about it because I was so embarrassed about it. And they would try to help me with do this, do that. And none of them worked. And I would get frustrated with people and lash out at them. People stood by me and gave me a lot of grace when I was really a mess. Um, and so I try to do that with others now because honestly, drunk people annoy me a lot. Drunk people drive me crazy. Like I don't wanna be around them. When I was a drunk person, people were pretty nice to me and I was real annoying. And I thought I was real funny. And I thought I was really, you know, hey, everyone wants to talk to me. No, no. Um, so I, I just, I, I want people to know about the Sinclair method because it works and it works in a really life affirming way. You know, um, I'm a grown up. You're a grown up. We're grown ups. We can take care of ourselves. I'm a, you know, capable human being. I'm a resourceful human being. In this one area of my life, things were falling apart and it, and it overshadowed every, and it tainted every area of my life. Exactly. Um, every single area. Um, and I, but now, so I've got some other things that I'm, I need to also stop doing, um, like smoking cigarettes. Um, and oh, coffee was one of them too. I used to drink a ton of coffee and I'm now down to one cup a day. And I'm also educating myself on smoking. So I'm not scared to quit smoking now. I used to be like, oh my God, I can't believe, like I started smoking when I quit drinking. It's like, why I started smoking when I was 40 years old. I had quit drinking for a while. I was like, I think I'm gonna start smoking and like push through it and was like, this tastes so bad. I think I'm the bar. This is so disgusting. Be like, oh, just do it, do it. And then I was hooked, right? Like so dumb, like this coping mechanism. One that's totally full of shame. Like you have to hide, you know, like and it's gross and it stinks and everyone knows it. And you're a smoker, you know, like, but I the fear isn't there for me when it where it used to be there for me. I think I can't quit. I can't go down to one cup of coffee a day. That's unbelievable. It was actually really, really, really easy. Hmm. Um, and the book, I'm reading a book right now about quitting smoking and it's by Alan Card, you know? Oh, him? Yeah. Yep, I've read a couple of his books. Right, and he's talking now about the subconscious messaging we get around substances. And he's talking, of course, about tobacco. But I read a lot about that subconscious stuff about alcohol and other substances when I was reading um, This Naked Mind. That's when I first started to really become aware of that stuff. So he's talking about this too, and his book is older. Yeah, I noticed This Naked Mind is adapted a lot from his easy way to control alcohol. Me too, now that I'm reading his book, I'm like, oh. And he's great. I mean, he's like, yeah, the stress and stuff around smoking is created by smoking. So, and now after doing the Sinclair method and really truly understanding that that was the same thing with alcohol, I, it takes, it, 
it opened it it opened my mind to being like oh now i'd like to i want to quit these other things not i gotta quit this i gotta quit that i gotta quit this because of this i gotta quit that because of this i want to quit these things i don't want to be like enslaved to some substance ever again ever again amen sister <laughs> yeah like it's so bad it's so brutal um and smoking cigarettes is not as socially acceptable as drinking so it's kind of like mm, it's a little bit easier of a sell right but it's the same thing it's the same you know addiction is the same process but it's the same brainwashing it's the same marketing it's the same propaganda it's the same glamorizing it's the same batch of lies and these organ these industries alcohol tobacco they have to replace their dying off members you know i mean it's like it just seems i became willing to be open to really seeing what harms these things actually do and to really look honestly at what does this actually do for me and he says that too what does this cigarette do for you what does this drink really do for you what do i want i want a moment i want to relax i want a moment of peace and serenity so instead of going outside and sitting on the back step and smoking a cigarette or having a drink i can go outside and sit on the back step and hold on to my dog and breathe in fresh air and enjoy it and like stare at my garden and enjoy it and then i used to be really fearful of these things i used to think that there was this demon living inside me or like this evil disease that was living inside me that i couldn't control and there's nothing i was gonna be able to do except for just kind of take it and and try to do this about it for until it went away um and it's it's just not so I think you know it's pretty typical if you're if you're in the midst of an addiction, uh, you don't really want to hear about the bad stuff about it. It's really easy to justify it. It's really easy to kind of see past that stuff that even though it's like really obvious and it's in your face, we can do anything to justify. Hey, I can do whatever I want. I'm a grown up. I can make a choice to drink. I wasn't really in control of that choice, but I was. There's like this dichotomy, like. Okay, I'm choosing to drink, so that's on me. But the choice was so hard not to drink that I couldn't really fight my way through it. And I would use things like one day at a time to my advantage, like I'll drink today because tomorrow's another day. <laughs> tomorrow's a new day, you know. Um, but I was always really angry and I was always really filled with rage and I got really mad and I was all that's the other piece of my upbringing a lot of repressed emotions. Anger was a big one that is not allowed in our household at all no expression of it is ever acceptable, so I squished it down and it comes out sideways and it resulted in self loathing it resulted in shame it resulted in really destructive behaviors even uh, even I even bite my nails too much I bite the inside of my cheek um I kind of comb through my hair with my fingers I'm not pulling on my hair but body repetitive like just bad beating up my body not eating right um and it saddens me now of course right luckily these bodies of ours bounce back really really quickly um but part of me yeah i mean i worry about sometimes some of the things that i did to my body but again there's nothing i can do about it and the beauty is that i don't i don't have like if i think about going to an event like a family gathering where there's usually lots of booze or a wedding which I haven't been invited to one of those in how long i don't know but those used to really stress me out like i can't and I was in a point where I knew I shouldn't drink. You know, I, it was in that 20 year period where I'd already gone to rehab a couple of times. And I was like, I knew I shouldn't drink. Everyone knew I shouldn't drink. And I would say to people, I don't drink anymore. And then 20 minutes later, 
I'd be drinking. Or the next time I saw him, I'd be like, yeah, I started drinking again, whatever, it's probably a deal, I'll deal with it. Um, but that really alienates people and it led to more isolation um, because people thought I was inauthentic. They thought I was probably just kind of full of it. You know, I mean, it's strange. People will be like, wait a minute, she seems drunk, but is she like, yes, obviously. But she said she's not anymore. Well, people want others to succeed and do well. Um, but I was a scary, I was kind of, I was unpredictable and I was scary. And I used to really worry about going to those events and not being able to drink. Now, I honestly, whenever someone invites me to do something, I'm like, sure, let's do it. I mean, no one's invited me to like a kegger, but like, you know, you know, but you, things like, let's go to dinner, even going out to dinner. I can't have food without wine. Like, yes, you can. <laughs> yeah, you can. Um, but I'm really just starting to kind of figure out those reasons why I drank and why I returned to self-soothing behaviors that no longer served me. Because I have always had some, I've always had other behaviors that sort of seem to negate the bad stuff I was doing. Like I've always exercised and that was pretty much it. I've always exercised and drank a lot of water, okay? Um, but yeah, I was just, I was a mess. And I look back on that part of my life and I think, I really pushed people away though too. Like I really pushed people away. I wasn't like, please help me, come help me. It was like, I push people away, yet I would feel terrible about myself and they could see it. So it was just confusing for my family and my friends and it was really confusing for me as well. Um, and rebuilding relationships and deciding which ones I'd still like and which ones I don't. And, you know, I have to rebuild some stuff with my mom and with my brother. Um, and those things I, I, I'm putting off doing because they're gonna be super painful conversations. Not because they're gonna be unwilling to listen, but because I'm gonna cry my eyes out the whole time. And I wanna be more diplomatic about it. Um, but it's an emotional thing. Um, being a human being is an emotional thing, but I have in the past really kind of let my emotions around things take over. And booze made that way worse because when I drank those repressed emotions, would totally come out. I would get mouthy sometimes, tell people off sometimes, things that I never would have done if I wasn't drinking. Not to say like, I'm not that person. I was only like that because I was drinking, but it was like it brought, it like took those boundaries away from me. Mm -hmm. And it felt so good to go off. And then I feel so bad, but I'm kind of going off on a tangent. Well, how are you coping with those things now? Because I think you mentioned you're in therapy and kind of working mm -hmm. through some of these reasons why you drink. So like now that you're not using alcohol to kind of repress those anymore, what has that healing process been like? It has been, you know, there's some, there's some pain around, my dad isn't alive anymore. And he is somebody who I would love to talk to now, who I wish could see how I'm doing, because he always believed in me. Um, so there's a lot of pain there. And this one year of no alcohol is, kind of, is pretty bittersweet for me. And that's another reason I'm resisting talking to my family about it, because it's like, hey, by the way, I'm sober now, but I wasn't when dad was dying. And I'm sorry. Um, but it's really painful. It's like little kid stuff. It's like nurturing my inner child. It's just really, it can be really painful um, to think of myself as a little kid in that environment and not really understanding what was going on, but understanding and believing that I really had, depending on my behavior, things could stay calm in the house or not. You know, I felt it was, it, that's a lot for a little kid to feel like that. And then of course I just wanted my parents' approval and I just wanted them to be happy and I just wanted them to love me. Um, and they did, 
you know, they did, but life is challenging. Having children is really challenging. So it's been painful. Um, I'm really working through those things with, I, I think I mentioned I have two therapists. And so one therapist and one intimacy coach. Um, she is a sex coach, but that's not what we're working on for me. It's more, you know, healing that wounded inner child um, and setting boundaries for myself. Um, believing in myself and I've always struggled in relationships um, because of I always assumed it was because booze was my primary relationship well not not really I mean I think I struggled in relationships because I was so I felt so bad about myself uh, I didn't set boundaries I didn't say what I wanted I was too easily I would easily acquiesce um, and then I would get resentful um, so it's been painful. There's been, there have been a lot of tears, but it's really cathartic because once those things have, the things that I'm learning about myself become clear to me, I think, oh, that's really interesting. Um, I'm not, I'm bouncing them off my therapist. I'm not bouncing them off my family members um, because I'm honestly, I don't want to hurt my mom's feelings. I'm afraid she might say, well, that's just not really how it was. You know, she might say that, well, maybe I'm wrong. But the healing process is, it requires a lot of patience, um, but practicing patience helps you learn patience. Um, understanding that these things aren't gonna get fixed overnight uh, and that I'm all, my brain is always working whether I know it or not, processing what's going on, whether I know it or not, everyone's brain is. And to be cognizant of my negative thought patterns, such as, well, they did this, and so then no, no wonder why I did this. They did this, she said that. Um, the reason that, you know, no, just accepting the way life has been and that I did the best I could as a human being with the tools I had. Um, I do feel bad though about the years of anger that I repressed and that came out all the time anyway. I mean, I was a pretty unpleasant person to be around. Like I said, at one, on one side, it was this positive, fun person to be around when I wasn't drunk. And then this really negative depressive who was like, I was actually fatalistic about stuff. I was like, this is not even worth my time. None of this matters, you know? Um, and I just, the healing process is slow and it takes patience and it can be painful and there's crying and there's tears, but it's all, I truly believe part of the process and it's not gonna be sunshine and flowers all the time. Um, How did you prepare yourself for that? Like, was it a gradual kind of introduction into healing some of these things? Like, how did you not just revert back to just, okay, I'm just gonna drink or you know, numb out in another way. Part of me, I do. Hmm. So ask that one more time. Like, cause I relate to so much of what you're saying about just like the deep healing that can go on when you start taking alcohol away and no longer numbing, but it, it can almost be overwhelming at times. And I see people sometimes who start to feel those things and it's like, Whoa, this is too much. I'm just going to skip taking now or maybe take it, but just drink mindlessly and not really do the work so how did you kind of like tip your toe in the water so to speak to like prepare yourself for this deep healing that was happening in combination with reducing the drinking does that make sense mm -hmm. um I well one thing one really important thing for me was to be honest with my therapist about it I was not honest with her that I hadn't stopped drinking and I know I mentioned that before that was a difficult step because she was, she was a little upset. You know, she was like, I don't know if we can keep working together. If, and I thought, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. You know, she thinks I'm dishonest, but we worked through it and we really enjoy working together. We're now digging into that, that hard stuff. It's tough, but it is not because I've been through these things and come out the other side. I understand that my mind can make a mountain out of a molehill and 
that my perception is reality sometimes, and my perception is right sometimes, but it's often exaggerated or missing something, or a lot of things aren't what they seem. You know, there's always some other variable going on. So I think to really understand that when I was doing naltrexone, see, I just, I felt like I believed in the process so much that I, I figured it would, it would work. And I, but I, I haven't, I do catch myself once in a while having some negative thoughts, having some fatalistic thoughts, like I'm just this. And so I can't get that job or I'm just meant to be this. And so I can't do that or be this or whatever. Um, but we can do super hard things. And oftentimes our brain is really making it a lot harder than it needs to be. And that after going through those things coming out the other end, you can kind of rack up some of those experiences and say, you know, that wasn't that bad. Um, or I'm really proud of myself actually, because I was able to do that. You know, if I'm beating up on myself these days, the therapist is like, do you realize that you are, you're sober? Do you know that? I mean, you know that. Can we stop and just talk about that for a second? That's a really, really, really big deal. That, that was what I wanted. That's what I wanted. Where I'm at right now is what I wanted for 25 years. 25 years. Um, but I really do have to be mindful of, you know, I, I got my second COVID shot. Did I, do, did I tell you about this last time? And I didn't sleep very well for like three nights. Wow. <laughs> third day I was in a full on shame spiral like full-blown like oh like and I knew it was coming because I was like if I'm not sleeping something bad I'm gonna I'm gonna probably have a meltdown of some kind um and I did luckily it was during therapy but it was just like um <clears throat> uh how do I not go back into that I really don't want to mess with it anymore. I really don't want to go back to where I was. And I don't think I would because of naltrexone, because of the Sinclair method, I probably wouldn't jump way back into the hard stuff. But I was always compliant because I really wanted to do it. I think um, I understand. I guess I guess I understand that I, I understand the temptation to say, I'm not going to take naltrexone and get wasted tonight. But I really didn't want to risk that. I really did feel like it was kind of like my final chance. And um, but how I had the mindset, because I engaged in plenty of risky behavior before, you know, um, I think that was just the Sinclair method working. Um, because my brain has been completely rewired back to where it was before I started drinking it's it's amazing I can't I really am sort of I'm blown away by it but I've been through I you know do you see a lot of do people because I didn't have the goal of just drinking like a regular person um I I guess I haven't are there a lot of people who do reach pharmacological extinction in terms of not drinking anymore? Or are more people kind of more apt to say, to do the, I'm just gonna drink like a regular person? Yeah, the latter. I think most people wanna just have that goal to drink like a regular person. And um, I also see people who that is their goal and they kind of do that for years and they're like, okay, I think I'm done with this Over and it. I will give it up. But most people I think do have it you know once a while if it's once in a, once a year or once a month um, yeah I really to be honest with you I wasn't at first when I first started the Sinclair method I was drinking like a quote-unquote normal person drink one drink two drinks but then I kind of went back up to drinking like a not a normal person like uh troublesome drinking to me um seven drinks in a sitting ten drinks in a sitting um so I had kind of like thought, well, 
I don't know if drinking normally is really something that I can do. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't something I wanted. I wanted that for so long. Like that is what I wanted for so long. Then by the time I did Sinclair Method, that's not what I wanted. Although knowing that that would probably happen. And, and the first few times I drank on it, I definitely feel that I felt that way. Like I can be a regular person and I can go home and call it a night and it's not a big deal. Um, but I just kind of, like you're saying with some people who, oh, they drink like normal for a few years and then they just sort of lose interest. I just lost interest. I just couldn't be bothered. And I heard a woman say that in one of the meetings. She's just like, I just couldn't be bothered anymore. So and it cool. does. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah. It's super cool. Yeah. Really gives you the control back. And the fact that it's still a choice, like you can, if you want to, it's like, oh, you have the best of both worlds. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and to have that safeguard there. Um, and if it does help, you know, cause it does help. Like I, like I said, I think I only, I only blacked out on it one time when I was doing the Sinclair method, like I didn't black out in eight months and I was a blackout drinker when I was drinking. Um, I want to ask you about, um, kind of transition a little bit. Cause I know you've talked about Gaber Mate's book and how much they've helped you and his resources. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I've heard about, where did I hear? Oh, I think I heard about his book, Holly Whitaker mentioned, Holly Whitaker, who wrote Quit Like a Woman mentioned in the realm of hungry ghosts in her book as one of the books that she had read. And so I ordered it and I read it and it's, it's really, really good. And essentially he, uh, he is a physician who worked on Vancouver Skid Row. Uh, I think he still does uh, with addicts and he takes a real compassionate approach and really asks them how they're doing, how they're feeling, encourages them. And he's a harm reduction model person. Harm reduction was something that I really, I only heard it mentioned a few times when I was doing the abstinence-based stuff. And it was always mentioned with kind of this eye roll judgy tone. Um, and like I said, I think harm reduction is kind of, if it's black and white, it's easier for people to say, drink or don't drink. That's easier. Just let's make it simple. Let's just make that, just make it real simple. But there's so many more, it's so much more nuanced than that. And and he also is like, there. He talks about getting to the bottom of the reasons why people self-soothe with alcohol and drugs. Um, and he is, he considers himself to be, he has addictive behaviors himself. You know, he's considered himself to be a bit of a workaholic and has an addiction to like buying too much classical music, but he like blasts classical music in his ear all the time and wouldn't like interact with his family. You know, or he'd be at work all the time um, and then he'd be really frustrated and angry about whatever, and he couldn't figure it out. But he, and he's like, I know it sounds goofy to say that you're addicted to classical music, but really it did affect my life. And he'd buy thousands of dollars worth of CDs at the store and he'd sneak to the store and buy them um, like on his lunch break and like drive by the store on his way home and like have to like white knuckle the steering wheel not to go in. Um, but he is so fascinating because he understands that even the littlest things can traumatize and scare. He, he's also the one who is like, it's not the trauma itself that like makes it into a big T or a little T trauma. It's your response to it. It's your feeling about it. It's how you perceive it. Um, that was a really big one for me. I, I would love to, to meet him. Now I mentioned too, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts is really great. And then he's got that other document. He has a documentary called Wisdom of Trauma. And he really, it's a, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts is a long read. It's a really, really good one. But if you're not so into reading or you don't want to do take that time, that, that documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma is really good. And it basically encapsulates everything he talks about in his book. And I never felt super, uh, people gave me grace, like I said, but when I was in abstinence-based program, in rehab, there wasn't a whole lot of um, compassion, you know? And I struggled with that because I had always put on this tough, this kind of like 
tough chick exterior. That was so transparent, you know, so transparent. This tough chick with a big mouth, but not a lot to say, you know, um, full of emotion, explosive. Um, and I was basically just kind of labeled a defiant brat and just kind of a hater or, you know, by the people, if you're not willing, you're not going to get it. And I was like, and they'd say, are you willing to do anything to stay sober? And I was like, no, I'm willing to be honest with you about that. Does that count? And, you know, so I was kind of, I was that kind of, I was really defensive and difficult. And he, and people like that, that he deals with, are, people are, are like that with him too. He gets a lot of pushback and, and some, you know, mean, people say mean things to him, but he's really, um, He's very self-aware and he's introspective and he really understands that the human condition is the human condition. It's not the alcoholic condition or the addict condition. You know, I think sometimes alcoholics and addicts will say, oh, it's just your alcoholic mind. And I'm like, no, no, that's just a human mind. Um, it's, I, I, I can't recommend him enough. He's also an ADHD person or he had struggled with ADHD, I think as a child. Um, and his story is pretty intense. He was um, given away by his mother to a stranger for a few weeks in the middle of like, uh, he was living in Hungary, he grew up in Hungary and the Germans were invading. This is World War II and he's Jewish. And his mom had to hand him over to a stranger for a few weeks while she went and kind of hid. That's crazy. Can you imagine no. that trauma? Can you imagine? And he was a baby, of course, so like he didn't remember it. But can you imagine how he felt? As a baby? He's just a really compassionate, kind person, but he's also a human being who struggles with his own stuff. Um, and he's a, a harm reductionist. He understands that, you know, I have a good friend who went through the abstinence-based stuff with me too, and she was a heroin addict and she couldn't get sober using 12 step stuff either ended up doing suboxone and then ended up doing methadone and quitting methadone and getting totally free from all of it um, and that was really the first person who I witnessed go through a harm reduction thing and that was about 10 years ago now she's still clean I'm seeing her tomorrow um, but me too it was too complicated I wanted it black and white and easy too me too let's make this real simple quit or don't quit or don't, alcoholic, not, normal, abnormal. Um, but I wanted that easy fix too. Uh, but my mind wasn't free from the obsession around it uh, because I hadn't interrupted that, you know, endorphin system, that reward pathway. I hadn't re, you know, I hadn't taken the time to make those neural pathways atrophy from not from non-use and the and the coolest thing is I have so much more interest in everything now than I used to everything interests me I google everything I read and look at everything practically everything I'm just like what like what did I want to know about the other day I mean I'm just trying oh the domestication of dogs I was like well how did that happen how did this little animals come into our lives you know, I used to sit in my parents' um, dining room and read the encyclopedia, read it, read it, read it. I just loved just getting tons of information about everything and seeing everything and noticing everything, you know, and that was gone for so long and that has all come back and it makes daily life so enjoyable. Um, it just does. I, I, it's so interesting and I wonder if one day, and I assume it will, one day I'll be like, wow, because I am blown away by the Sinclair method and what's happened. But I don't think it's fully sunk in how miraculous it truly is. I don't think it really is truly sunk in for me. Because it's so, the change in me is so obvious that even I can see it. You know, I used to be like, well, you might not see it, but other people can see it. I can see it. Because I wasn't always thinking about what was on my mind? I didn't have constant cognitive dissonance around stuff. Engage, be present, be there and enjoy it. I always used to be like, 
when can I get out of here so I can get a drink? Exactly. When can I get out of here? You know, uh, no. everything revolved around the drink and like everything. just such a stark contrast to because I relate again to what you're saying of just like how everything's enjoyable now or interesting and engaging and oh wow life is actually really cool but when you're in that loop of addiction it's like nothing is cool unless you've got a drink in your hand like don't bother me unless you're going to invite me somewhere that has alcohol I remember really nothing feeling is, that yeah nothing and it's so funny because I was looking um for one of the the TSM meetings and I was on your website and there's a picture of you reading a book on a bench reading the cure for alcoholism on a bench and I'm like that looks so nice like sitting there relaxing reading a book that before would have been like no in my mind would have been like oh yeah that looks real great but that's not me you know unless I'm reading a book drinking wine or something um and that it is very effective yeah, it is such a central part of your life, but then it's gone and it's not. It's gone and it's not, and it's no longer taking up that space. Um, and my brain has been reprogrammed and it's happened way faster than any trying to force it myself. Um, I, I think this is such a good and effective method. I just, I really think one day, I hope one day, that it's something that everybody knows about. You know, I think it's just, I think it's a shame that it's not well known and that it's actually kind of hidden by yeah. people in the, you know, rehab recovery complex like they are the industrial complex they kind of they bury it they hide it yeah maybe may uh, they must I don't know if like the counselors on the front lines do but people up top have to know and no and you know what and I and I don't like the whole well, of course you're going to do that method. You can still drink on it. Like, by the way, I'm re I'm trying something to get better. This is not fun and games for me. This is not, I'm in denial and I'm going to do something because I just want to drink anyway. I don't want to drink anymore, but I cannot stop. You know, there are other things that you just don't want to do anymore. So you stop. Doesn't take much. Um, so I think that's all, that's always like the, the first pushback I feel coming. If I mention the Sinclair method to somebody there, I was like, Oh, that's weird. What? And I'm like, once no. an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. <laughs> that's just oh not God, true. I'm gonna, nope. An alcoholic isn't even true. I don't, I don't know, man. I, I, I feel like that is a really polarizing word as well. Um, I grew up, my grandma was an alcoholic and it was this big family secret. And then one day she died and she and, she and I were really, really close and she died. I was 14 years old. And, um, then my mom was like, oh, cause I was like, well, what happened? She was fine. And then I was like, oh, well, she's been an alcoholic for 40 years and they killed her. Um, <clears throat> and so then my family, all my, my family, my cousins, my extended family, when we get together, it was all eyes on me then because they saw me drinking like that. And they were all like, we never said anything to your grandma and we're not going to let this happen to you too, you know, to assuage their guilt. They also cared about me too. But um, she, my mom said that they tried to intervene on my grandma and she was basically like, dude, she, my grandma didn't say dude, but she was like, no, I'm going to do what I want. And she was real angry with them. And my mom's like, oh, she was so angry. And I'm like, you're threatening to take away her favorite thing or what she thinks is her favorite thing. You're threatening to take away the thing that has brought her nothing but misery, but also in her mind does something for her. Um, but it was this kind of this family secret. No one wanted to talk about it. And then all of a sudden everybody wanted to talk about my issue. And I was like, I was mad at them too. I was like, I felt defensive like she did. Like, don't tell me what to do. 
Um, because I couldn't even tell myself what to do and stick with it. I couldn't even tell myself, you're going to do this today and, and stay with it. You're going to stay sober today. You're not going to drink. And I couldn't even do that. So most of that anger that I felt towards other people, I felt guilty about. I felt like it was misdirected because it really wasn't their fault. And so again, I wasn't emotionally well. I had just internalized everything. I just internalized it. And I was cognizant that, oh, that has nothing to do with me. It's not about me. And then sometimes, you know, sometimes when you're at, people will say, oh, that guy gave me kind of a weird look. Do you think he's mad at me? I never even sweat that kind of, like at work. So-and-so didn't say hi to me this morning. Do you think they're mad at me? Am I in trouble? I don't sweat that kind of stuff at all. But there were certain times and I was like, I feel like all eyes are on me and my family and they just don't understand what's the matter. And I had one aunt who was really compassionate and really, really sweet. And interestingly enough, she was the one that's, she's the kind of the more hard-edged person. You know, she's tough as nails. She is the one who would sit me down and look me right in the eye and put her hands on my shoulders and say, you need to do what's right for you. And you have to figure that out. You need to learn to believe in yourself and you need to figure that out. I love you and I'm here for you. And, but I was, you know, I was a tough one to love then. I was really defensive, but that was the kind of thing that in the moment I was kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then it stuck with me, you know, it would stick with me. Like she really, you know, she sat me down and talked to me and told me she loved me. And that was that. And she can see that I don't like myself and she can see what it's done to me. I really had no reason not to like myself. I really had no reason. Um, but I drank in secret and that, that the secret stuff is really challenging. And he talks about that, David Allen Carr talks about that. I haven't gotten to, oh, David Allen Carr, excuse me, that's somebody else entirely. Allen Carr says, um, and I've lost my thought because I said the wrong name. David Allen Carr is actually somebody who wrote a book called Night of the Gun. He was an alcoholic, excuse me, person who drank too much and he struggled a lot with it. Um, and it's a really good memoir. And his daughter just wrote a memoir too about growing up with him. They're both journalists. He worked for the New York Times. Wow. Um, but then Allen Carr, the quit smoking person, again, I can't remember what I was going to say. Just a lot of Fear makes people do really bizarre things and it drives a lot of bizarre decisions or in a lot of just regular decisions. And living in constant fear is such a scary, icky thing. And um, the fear of not being able to get sober and never getting sober, never quitting was always with me. Um, and when I drank, that fear was gone. You know, when I drank, that fear dissipated for those two hours, three hours, or however long it went on. And we all know that it comes back the next day really badly, but like that's, if you are able to learn how to manage your emotions and really put them in the, what do they say in AA? Get them right-sized, you know? Just put stuff in perspective. I would just kind of blow things out of perspective. And it was kind of fun for me. Like I kind of enjoyed raving about stuff going off you know sitting on the soapbox and talking as you can tell I like talking but like it's kind of going off about my own stuff and this the world is screwed up because of this and this and this and it's like gee, I don't like that and I don't want to be that person anymore I have a deep appreciation for people like that though I do but um I just I wanted some reprieve from that constant fear about life um and that it doesn't have to be scary and booze makes it so much worse yeah for sure are there other things you want to share or say before we start to wrap up or points you want to hit on I just recommend that if you are struggling and I, I believe I said this last time if you're struggling with with alcohol use disorder and you are wondering whether or not to do the Sinclair method I suggest trying it because you're probably drinking anyway. I was, and if I was 
not able to stop, I was going to use it to my advantage. And by you doing the Sinclair method and by drinking and being compliant and not taking naltrexone on your days when you're not drinking, everything falls into place. Um, and I, I, I recommend if you know you have a problem, if you know, if it causes you any kind of distress whatsoever, it doesn't matter how much you drink. It doesn't matter what happens when you drink. If it causes you distress, if it causes you, if it gives you pause and thing, make, gives you, makes you feel ashamed or guilty or gives you any kind of the, you know, cognitive dissonance, that is an indication that you are not okay with it, that it needs to change. Um, and it's really frustrating. It was frustrating for me to want to change and not be able to. And the Sinclair method gave me that chance to do it and has given me not my life back, actually a better life than what I had even before I started drinking. Um, and now I need to work on some of those things that I think are a lifelong journey, like self-esteem and self-worth and boundary setting and standing up for myself in a diplomatic manner and deciding what I want. I, I often never knew what I wanted. So I think if you want your brain to, if you want to give yourself a fighting chance, I suggest trying the Sinclair method. It really, really helps because it's twofold. It's not just reprogram, you know, reprogramming those neural pathways in your brain. It's also programming new ones on those days that you're not taking naltrexone and doing things that you enjoy so that those endorphins and those neural pathways can be strengthened. And you can have desire to do those things instead of that thing. And it works and it's, 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 it works so well. I guess I just, I can't, I can't say it enough. I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so grateful to you sharing your journey because it's, I think you speak to all like the key points of recovery. It's not just about naltrexone though. That's like a crucial component it's like so much more of a healing process than that and I appreciate you speaking to all of that today yeah and it's um it makes the journey a lot more doable you just way more obstacles just kicked out of the way just yeah. all that stuff that self-imposed stuff is gone yeah it gives you space I think to be able to deal with that stuff exactly it clears your head space yeah yeah all right well Lindsay thank you so much for chatting with me again thank um, you happy one year alcohol free <laughs> thanks thank you for tuning in to the thrive alcohol recovery podcast for additional sinclair method resources and support please check out the information in our show notes we look forward to seeing you on the next episode